Well, as you know, we have moved into a new section in 1 Peter, and it is the first section that contains exhortations. In the first 12 verses of Peter's first epistle, there were no imperatives, all indicatives, all descriptions, statements of information, because, as we need to be reminded, There is first something to know and to understand and to believe before there is anything to do. The gospel is about what God has done through Christ to save helpless sinners, not about what man must do to pull himself up or to commend himself to God. All other religions, including corrupted forms of Christianity, say, do this in order to be saved, or do this in order to qualify yourself for salvation, or do this in order to help God in saving you, or do this in order to keep yourself saved. But the Bible says Christ has done it all, all to him we owe. Therefore, believe in him, and you shall be saved. But for those who have been saved by grace, there are commands, there are instructions, there are imperatives to tell us how God expects his dear children to live. And so when we moved into verse 13 last Sunday morning, we found command, command, command. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 13, three things that we as God's children are to do. And in the next smaller section, verses 14 through 16, we find two more commands, a negative prohibition in verse 14 and a positive requirement in verse 15 and then a reason for them both in verse 16. The negative is, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, here's the positive requirement, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, and here's the reason for it all, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. And so the Bible does have things to do and things not to do. The Bible has thou shalt and thou shalt nots, but they are never in order to earn salvation. They are never in order to help us be saved. They are always the outflow of the grace of salvation that has already been worked into us through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so this morning we're going to zero in on verse 14. Because with this prohibition, this thou shalt not in verse 14, Peter tells Christians, number one, who we are, number two, who we were, and number three, what is expected of us now. And here's the difference that Christ makes in the believer's life. First of all, who we are. As obedient children. Who we are. Obedient children. And that phrase describes who Christians are as to their conduct, obedient children. Notice that Peter assumes genuine professions 
of faith in Christ. He is writing to a wide variety of people in various locations throughout northern Turkey, but he is writing to all of them according to their outward profession of faith in Christ, and he assumes that they are, in fact, obedient children because they are professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This could be translated, inasmuch as you are children. Inasmuch as you are children of God, then here's something that you need to do. And Peter is therefore assuming a relationship, a child-father relationship, as obedient children. Children of who? Well, obviously, children of God. A child-father relationship is assumed here. And so Peter takes their public profession of faith at face value, and he assumes filial obedience. That is, that children obey their parents. That children of God will obey their Heavenly Father. We're not talking, of course, about perfect obedience, because that awaits our presence in heaven with the Lord when we shall be entirely sanctified. But there is this this desire, this endeavor to obey our Heavenly Father if we are indeed children of God. And Peter assumes that. Inasmuch as you are obedient children, because you are obedient children, then I have some things to say to you, which because you are obedient children, you will want to hear. You have a desire to know your Heavenly Father's will. And when you know it, you will endeavor to do it. So Peter assumes that their profession of faith is genuine and that they have a desire for filial obedience. Now, it might be good to remind ourselves again who Peter is addressing. Peter is addressing baptized members of their respective churches scattered throughout northern Turkey. You say, how do you know that? Well, because it's very clear that in the New Testament, baptism was considered the first matter of obedience for those who had believed upon Christ. And in fact, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find any New Testament writer who considered anybody to be a Christian who had not been baptized. That's just kindergarten obedience. That's just first step obedience. It's assumed that those who believe will be baptized, and until someone is baptized, we don't even assume that they have believed, that they are, in fact, a child of God. At least that's what the New Testament writers assumed. After all, it is Peter who is writing this. And remember, he's the one who preached this way on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, when they heard this, his sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Some have taken this text and others like it and have misunderstood that to mean that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. But that is a 
terrible misunderstanding of what the Scripture teaches, but this close connection between faith and baptism that you find in a number of New Testament texts, so close that some people are able to misunderstand it, and even are able to bring texts like this out as proof texts that until you are baptized in water, you are not even born again. The fact that there are texts like that demonstrates what I'm saying to you, that in New Testament practice, baptism was so closely linked to faith that until a person had been baptized in water, it was not assumed that he could possibly be a believer in Jesus Christ. Peter's assuming obedience. He's assuming that certain levels of obedience have already been forthcoming and therefore that they are now ready for others to follow, which he's going to give them in his instructions. He's assuming that he is writing to people who are faithful to assemble together with the saints, who are faithful in church attendance. You say, how in the world do you read that into this text? Keep in mind, who was he writing to? How were they going to receive what he wrote? No printing presses. No wide distribution of scriptures in that day. Virtually no one had their own copy of scripture, of any portions of scripture. That's why the public reading of God's word was essential in public worship in those days. It's still vitally important in our day and much neglected, I'm afraid, in many places. But that was the only way that people could hear the word of God. That was the only way they could hear the contents of this epistle, as if they were present in the assembly of the saints when this epistle from Peter was read to them in their churches. Of course, he's assuming that he is writing to baptized believers, members of local churches who are faithful in attendance to their church. Otherwise, they will never even hear what he has to say to them. And if those two initial levels of simple childlike obedience are true in their lives, it is probably safe to assume that they are saved and that other levels of obedience will be forthcoming as well. And so he writes to obedient children, those who are obedient to their Heavenly Father. He writes as if obedience... To God is the inevitable result of conversion, not simply a preferred result. It's not just that those who have believed in Jesus Christ ought to obey their Heavenly Father. It would be nice if you did. It really would make a better testimony before the world, though all of those things are true. But there's a much stronger implication here than this. If you are a child of God at all, you are obedient to your heavenly Father. It is inevitable. This one text would be enough to settle the so-called lordship salvation controversy which erupted across America about 20-some years ago. The question about whether it's possible to believe in Jesus as Savior but not to submit to Him as Lord And some stoutly insisted that it is possible and that if you insist upon a surrender to Christ as Lord, a basic life of obedience to the Lordship of Christ, that you are adding works to the salvation, which is all of grace. But, of course, that is a complete misunderstanding, a complete misunderstanding. Salvation is all of grace, but salvation involves a change. 
Salvation has some inevitable results. The power of God in salvation that is powerful enough to change your heart is powerful enough to command your obedience. And it is assumed that if you are a child of God, you are in an obedience mode. That's your new direction. That's your new desire. All by the work of God's grace in your life. In fact, it would not be wrong to say that the gospel is a command to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. A true understanding of heart faith would lead us to that conclusion. The gospel can be presented as historical facts to know and to believe about Christ, but it's more than simply historical facts to believe in an intellectual way. There is more than that. Nearly all of God's people understand there's more than that. And the question is, what is that more? And that can be described in various ways, but one way is to simply say it is a matter of surrender. Are you going to continue your rebellion as a sinful rebel against your Creator, defying Him, disobeying Him, going your own way, shaking your fist in His face? Or are you now going to surrender and say, I yield to Christ. I gladly become His follower. I become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe in Him, therefore I obey Him. And the gospel is a command to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so the question is, who are we? We are professing, baptized followers of Christ who are endeavoring to please him in our daily walk. That's who Peter is writing to, and that's who I'm preaching to primarily this morning. And the question is, is this who you are? And if not, then you need to go back to the beginning. We need to talk to you about the gospel and about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your desperate need of Christ. So who we are, first of all, obedient children, but who we are, secondly, children of obedience. You say, well, that's virtually the same thing. Well, similar, but slightly different, and here's one of those places where a nuance can be very important. The literal reading in the Greek is not obedient children, as if obedient is an adjective placed in front of children to modify it. But the literal reading in the Greek is children of obedience. It is a prepositional phrase that modifies children. And that's a bit different because this now points not only to our conduct, but even something deeper than that. It points to our very nature. This is a description And it is a category, children of obedience. It mirrors Old Testament language. How many times in the Old Testament do we read about sons of Belial? To cite one example, you have to go back to the King James Bible to find that. Uh, Judges 19.22. Now as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city... Uh, Behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial, beset the house round about, and so forth. Certain sons of Belial, and you find that phrase repeated, that has been translated in more modern translations as something like 
perverse men. And that's correct as far as it goes, but it's missing this nuance. Because it's not just talking about their conduct, but it's talking about their character and their category. And that's more clearly seen when you leave it in that prepositional form. Sons of Belial. You have that kind of language all throughout the New Testament as well. Hear these words of Christ in Luke 10, verse 6. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. A son of peace. That is a person who is characterized by peace. As opposed to a person who is characterized by by uh, anger and strife and warfare. And it is a description, but it's also a category. It's saying there are two kinds of people in this world. There are sons of peace and there are sons of strife. There are children of God and there are children of Satan. Which category are you in? Sons of peace. It is a category. Or how about the language of Jesus in John 12:35? He said, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Sons of light. There it is again. Similar structure. Sons who are characterized by light. And this is a category. You have sons of light. You have sons of darkness. Two kinds of people in this world. In other words, saved and lost. And the saved are described as sons of life. Light. It's a category. And this is in contrast, and I could give you other examples, but I'll stop there. This is in contrast with sons or children of obedience, or disobedience rather, that we find a number of times in the New Testament. For example, Ephesians 2.2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. You catch the categories? Children of obedience on one hand, sons of disobedience on the other hand. Two categories of people in this world. In other words, saved and lost. And that you find elsewhere. Ephesians 5 and verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You don't want to be in that category. Sons of disobedience are headed for judgment and eternal destruction. But children of obedience are headed to heaven. You see how important this is? And just to make you aware that sometimes little nuances can get lost in translation, and sometimes they're quite important indeed. But here's the point. A child is of the same nature as its parents. All of the children that I have ever seen born into the families of our church and elsewhere have all been human beings, nothing else. Why is that? Because their parents are human beings. I haven't seen a single one that gave birth to a dog or a cat. You say, that's nonsense, that's silliness you're talking about. But it makes the point. 
children are of the same nature as their parents. Now, there's another phrase that we find in the Bible, very similar to the one here. Here the phrase is children of obedience, but often, more often, we talk about children of God. What is a child of God? A child of God is someone who has the nature of God. Now, that doesn't come by the first birth, does it? We're not all children of God. God isn't the father of us all, as some people teach. There are two categories. Christ talked about those whose father was the devil. So there are children of the devil, those who are lost. There are children of God, those who are saved. What's the difference? The children of the devil don't have the nature of God implanted within them. That can only come by the miracle of the new birth. That doesn't come naturally. Nobody is born with the nature of God within them. We're not born with a little spark of divinity within us. That's not the way we come into this world. But if we've been saved by the transforming work of God's Holy Spirit, then we are children of God. We have the nature of our Heavenly Father. And if we're children of God, then we're also children of obedience because obedience is a manifestation of family relationship and family resemblance. We can see family resemblance in the children of people, and there there are various ways that people demonstrate many times unknowingly, without meaning to, but they demonstrate family resemblance. And you, you say, when you... When you say that, you sound just like your mother. When you do that, you look just like your father. Have you ever said anything like that? I surely have. Well, that's the idea here. Children of obedience. Children of God who are obedient, who bear a family relationship and a family resemblance to the one who has given us his nature and brought us into his family. And so obedience indicates their character as God's dear children. So we're still talking about that first question, who we are as Christians. Who are we? We are fallen sons of Adam who have been transformed by the life-giving power of God's Holy Spirit and made sons of God by the implantation of a new nature. That's who we are. Praise God. Who were we? Who we were. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. The former lusts, as in your ignorance. The passions of your former ignorance, is the translation of the ESV. The evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, is the NIV translation. Who we were. Well, we were, number one, children of disobedience, and number two, children of ignorance. Who we were? Children of disobedience, our previous condition. If we are now, by the grace of God, children of obedience, that is in contrast to what we used to be. And Peter paints that contrast for us in our text in just a few brief words, but enough for us to get the idea. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. The way you are now is not the way you used to be. The way you are now is different, very different from what you were before you became a child of God. This speaks of a previous condition. 
their pre-Christian state. Something has changed. Christ makes a difference. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. And so children of disobedience with a fallen nature, former lusts, passions, evil desires, is the various translations that are given to this word. That tells us, by the way, that the people that Peter is writing to must have come primarily from pagan backgrounds, not Jewish backgrounds, because this is precisely the kind of language that is often used to describe Gentiles before they are converted, not Jews. You won't find this kind of description of Jews uh, throughout the Bible. As, for example, Ephesians 4:17 and 18. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Do you you hear this same kind of language being used to describe people who formerly were pagan Gentiles before they were saved? The kind of description that Paul uses is the same kind of description that Peter is now using. I find an awful lot of similarity between Peter and Paul. They certainly did not believe and teach different doctrines, that's for sure. Paul talked this way in his sermon on Mars Hill to the educated pagans of that Greek society. You really need to read the entire passage, but verse 30 of Acts 17 says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. These times of ignorance God overlooked, describing their lives right up until the time that Paul is preaching to them. Described in terms of ignorance because they were pagan Gentiles who did not have the Old Testament scriptures, had not had the prophets sent to them, did not have the temple and the tabernacle and all of the witness to the Messiah that had been given to the nation of Israel. They did not have the Ten Commandments given directly to them, though they had the law of God written in their hearts, which they turned away from. But this ignorance is a term that describes Gentiles, not Jews, before their conversion. And so children of ignorance is what we were. Children of disobedience. Again, that was our nature. That was, that was our, our, our direction. That's the category we were in. Children characterized by disobedience and children of ignorance. We didn't know the ways of God. God often brings judgment upon people who reject his truth by withdrawing a knowledge of himself from them. Romans 1 makes that clear. For the wrath, <coughs> excuse me, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. They have some truth, but they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. There was a knowledge, but they don't like the knowledge. They push it away, and so God withdraws it. Verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Therefore, verse 24, God also gave them up. Verse 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. It's a terrible judgment of God when God withdraws light, when God withdraws knowledge, when God withdraws an understanding of himself and his ways from people. And that comes when people insist, they stubbornly, willfully turn from the truth that God has given them. That's a very dangerous thing. And that's what leaves people in ignorance. And Peter said, that's the way you were. Children of disobedience, children of ignorance. But thirdly, we come to what is expected of us now. Because of who we are now instead of who we used to be, something is now expected of us. Verse 14 again. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Something is expected of those who are Christians. Those who believe in Christ, those who call themselves followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, something is expected of them. Something stated negatively in our text in verse 14, stated positively in the subsequent verse in verse 15. But behavior reflecting who we are. If we are God's children, then there is behavior that shows that, that demonstrates that. And we must be aware of that and we must Bend ourselves in that direction. We can only do it because of the work God has done within us. We have no ability apart from that. But we are given a responsibility to pursue this kind of holiness. To reject the kind of former conduct that we had before God sent the Spirit of Christ to invade our lives. Obedience is expected from children, not from strangers. Have you ever been in the grocery store and you saw some child acting up and you said, I would love to be that child's mother for just five minutes. Just give me five minutes to be that child's parent. I think I could make a difference. But, of course, you're not that child's parent. You can't touch them. And you can't demand that they obey you. Obedience is expected of children. Not strangers. Which are you? A child of God? Or a stranger to grace? If you are a child of God, then God has every right to expect certain kinds of conduct from you. We need to keep in mind that as children of God, our changed status is complete and perfect in Christ now. But our changed state is incomplete and awaits our arrival in heaven. If our changed state were now complete, there wouldn't be any need for instructions like these, would there? We would already be fully sanctified. We'd already be perfect and with the Lord in heaven. So we need to understand that salvation is in various stages, and we're in stage one right now, and much has been done. Oh, so much has been done in our lives but we still carry with us some of those former evil desires, and we have got to reject them. We recognize them for what they are, and we reject them. 
And we have the ability to do so because of our new heart and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So what is expected from us now? Well, first of all, behavior that is different from the world. Not conforming yourselves. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. This word conform is only used twice in the Greek New Testament. Once here by Peter. Do you know where the other time is? Romans 12.2, a very familiar text. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's only a reasonable service, we're told in verse 1. Same word, not conformed to the world. The world is trying to press us into its mold. The world is trying to, to call us after its pattern of life. But our actions must not conform to the pattern of ungodliness that dominates the fallen world around us because we are no longer part of that. We are no longer children of disobedience. We are children of obedience. We're in a different category. And therefore, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. Now, Christians need to realize, and we've got to get over this idea of trying to expect the world to conform to God's word. I suppose that has something to do with the history and heritage of American society in which we have been brought up, and particularly those of us who are a few years older than some of the others, uh, remember a society that was somewhat different, where, where the word of God commanded general respect throughout American society, even if everybody wasn't a born-again Christian and didn't necessarily believe it implicitly, there was a general respect afforded to it, and, and people agreed that it was right and good and ought to be followed. Those days have long since passed, I'm afraid. And we're now really living in a society that's much more like the one that Peter is writing to and that Paul writes to when he's writing to Christians who are in societies that are dominated by pagan thought that have never been changed by the word of God, have never had a dominant Christian culture to influence them. And we've got to adjust to the new reality, which really... It was, the, it was the old reality all along. We just didn't understand it, I'm afraid. But we've got to quit expecting the world to conform to God's word. They don't want to. They have no ability to. And increasingly, they don't even know what that means. Because of rejecting the truth, they are in greater and greater ignorance. So I don't think a crusade to try to get the world to adopt the Ten Commandments is going to get very far. And so we don't need to rail upon the world because it does not conform to God's word. But what we need to do is work harder at conforming ourselves to what we know about God's will. If we would work harder on our obedience, be more diligent in bringing up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, teaching them what God requires. If we would be more faithful in transforming our churches to better reflect what is expected us, us who are Christians, 
children of obedience, baptized believers and members of churches, what is expected, rightfully expected of us, if we would work harder at conforming ourselves to the will of God, that would have a far greater impact upon society than trying to change society by conforming it to certain moral standards. You see, until a person is born again, he can't do that. He has no ability. He has no desire. And he really doesn't even have much understanding of what that's all about. We need to evangelize, not get involved in moral crusades. And so, what is expected of us now? Behavior that is different from the world. And what is expected of us now? Behavior that is opposite our Adamic desires which actually is very much one and the same, is different from the world, but it's another way of thinking about it and understanding it, and we need to understand this. Behavior opposite our Adamic desires, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, that is, your former lusts, your former desires. God's will is the very opposite of what remaining sin makes us feel like doing. Formerly, before we were saved, we were controlled by sinful desire. That's what shaped, molded, guided our life. What we felt like doing. What we wanted to do. We did what we wanted to do. As much as we could. Sometimes we were refrained from it, but that's what we did. If we could figure out a way to do it, we would do it. We did what we felt like doing. What our, our nature, our desires wanted to do. And they were corrupt desires, sinful desires. We were formerly controlled by sinful desire. We were controlled by our desire for pleasure. Controlled by our desire for things, materialism, covetousness. Controlled by our desire for comfort. Controlled by sloth. Controlled by our desire for prestige and honor to be well thought of by others, controlled by our desire to have control over others, controlled by sexual desires and so forth. That's what controlled us before we were saved. But as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. Now we are controlled by obedience to God. We are formerly controlled by our feelings, now we are controlled by an external standard, but it conforms to the inward nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit whom God has placed within us. It's not totally foreign to us, but now there is an external standard. There is God himself. That's why it goes on to say, be ye also holy for it is written, be ye holy as I am holy. God himself becomes our standard. And of course, God reveals His character, His nature, His will in His Word. And so His Word becomes our standard. And we have something outside of us to look to and figure out what it is that is pleasing to God. What it is that, that constitutes obedience to God. And we find, praise God, that there is within us a desire for that, an inclination for that, an ability toward that that we didn't have before we were saved. It was entirely lacking so what is expected of us now? Behavior consistent with our Christian profession. 
Behavior, that is, reflects the new nature that God has placed within us. Behavior conforming to God's will as revealed in His Word. That's what is expected of us now. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. So this being so, what do we need to realize? Well, number one, we must study the Scriptures to know how Christ expects us to behave, don't we? Because we're not entirely sanctified yet, and we're still working on on getting our minds sanctified, having a better understanding of God's will and ways and person. And we still have these remnants of, of Adamic desires within us that have not been entirely rooted out. And so we're not always real clear about what it is that God desires and what he doesn't. Sometimes we've gotten hung up in, in the traditions of men, and we, we are going by what somebody else told us, do this, don't do that, and it may not be what the Word of God says at all. And we may be following an external standard of man instead of the Word of God. So we have got to become lifelong students of God's Word And that's why we study a book like 1 Peter and other portions of Scripture so that we can become more and more knowledgeable in who God is and what He expects. As Paul put it, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the growing understanding of God's Word that enables us to be obedient children that are pleasing to God. Furthermore, we must remember that the new birth creates a desire to please Christ, to live differently than before. When I was a boy, we used to sing a chorus that said, things are different now, some things happened to me. When I gave my heart to Jesus, things are different now. I am changed, it must be. When I gave my heart to him, things I loved before have all passed away. Things I love once more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened that day that I gave my heart to him. That's what Peter's saying. Things are different now. If you don't have a desire like that, then you need to recognize that your real need is to be born again. It's not to try harder. You can't can't work up a desire for something that you don't have a God-implanted desire for. You can't work up an ability for something that God has not given you an ability for. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must have a new heart. A new life, a new nature. And if you don't find that within you, then you need to understand what the reality is. We cannot obey the imperatives until we have experienced the indicatives. We can't follow the exhortations until first the statements about God and Christ and the glorious salvation that he has brought have become a reality in our soul until we really know what that's all about by personal experience. You can't obey the imperatives until you have experienced the indicatives. And I'm afraid there are many professing Christians who have not been born again 
And it may be that you are one of them. And God has brought you here today to hear this message for that very purpose. And dear friend, let me say to you, with all the the tenderness and love that I can, you will never be saved until first you acknowledge that you are lost. As long as you go on insisting that something is true that is not true, you'll never be in a position to receive the grace of God. Number two, you will never be saved until you desire Christ to give you a new heart. Not just to be saved from hell, but to be saved from sin, to be saved from myself. As I am in my first birth in Adam. Oh Lord, give me a new heart. I don't have one, but I need one. You'll never be saved until you desire Christ to give you a new heart. Do you want to be changed? Do you want that sinful heart within you to be changed? And you know you can't do it yourself. Then go to Christ in humble repentance and faith. Tell Him that you need a new heart. Tell Him that you can't change your life. Tell Him that you have no ability to do these things. That you are completely shut up to His mercy and His power. Tell Him that you must be saved by Christ and Christ alone. Or you are eternally doomed. Or do you want to pursue your Adamic desires undisturbed? You'd like to have a little veneer of Christian profession so that others won't suspect what your real desires are. And you would love to be able to go to heaven as a, as a life insurance policy, but you really don't want God messing with your life. You like it the way it is, thank you. Just leave me alone. That's dangerous. But if that's your condition, then stop deceiving yourself if you call yourself a Christian. At the very least, be honest. Acknowledge your true condition and stop playing games. That's the first step. That's the first step. Let's get clear what's what here. Who's who? Children of God are those who have been changed. Children of God are those who have a new heart. Children of God are those who have new desires. Let's quit playing games. Well, I prayed a prayer. Ah, but James said, if you pray and ask amiss so you can consume it upon your own lust, you'll not receive what you prayed for. Many person has prayed to be saved so that they can live their sinful life with impunity, without fear, without danger. They've been told if they'll just pray that prayer, they'll go to heaven regardless, and they don't have to worry about that anymore. That's a lie. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that kind of prayer is no prayer of faith. That's deception. And the kindest thing I can do to you, dear friend, is to help you see that. You'll never be saved until first you know yourself to be lost. And you need to understand what it is that God does in salvation. And what kind of a person a Christian is. A true Christian. And then you'll know what you need. And hopefully you'll know where to go. To a merciful God who turns away none who come to Him and repentance and faith. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, how much we need you. Oh, how much we need you. We need you to understand our sin. We need you to understand 
our ignorance. We need you to understand our blindness for without your shining your light of truth into our souls, we will go on in ignorance and blindness and religious superstition and not even understand where we are. Oh Lord, shine your light into our souls. And Lord, help your blood-bought children to reject conforming to this world and to our former desires and becoming more like Jesus Christ into whose image you are forming us. For we pray it in his name. Amen.